One of the things I love about the way we do deep dives on whole books of the Bible once or twice a year is that really spending time on these long chunks of scripture allows us to notice things that just don't show up when you're reading a passage here and a verse there. Today, we're going to consider something that only appears when you take in the horizon of a whole stretch of the landscape of Exodus, noticing the same theme pop up there and there and there. We're going to ask the question, who is Moses? Not what does Moses do, really, he's a prophet or he's a leader, but who is he? Where does he belong? What is his identity? Because the different voices in the opening chapters of Exodus, the narrator, the characters, Moses himself, they seem to give us an ambiguous answer to that question, at least at first. The story of his birth opens with one answer. This is Exodus 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. So he's an Israelite from the tribe of Levi. There we go. Questions answered. He comes from what would later be seen as impeccable genetic stock for a priest. Pharaoh's daughter confirms this a bit a few verses later, immediately concluding that he must be one of the Hebrew babies. Although even there, the word Hebrew, while we simply associate it with being Jewish, is a word that shows up all over the ancient Near Eastern world in all the various languages to describe foreign, lower class, outsider type people. It's not too far from a slur, in other words, one that the Bible then repurposes a bit less prestigious an identity than where we started then. But then, at the end of the birth story, we get a new piece of testimony. This is verse 10. When the child grew up, Moses' sister brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Well, now he's a prince, an Egyptian. Even the name Moses is interesting. The author of Exodus has Pharaoh's daughter giving an explanation for the name that comes from the Hebrew. In Hebrew, Moses would sound something in the ballpark of the verb to draw out. It's not a very close fit, but it's in the ballpark. It's a name that points forward in the story to God drawing out the people of Israel through the water. But Moses is not a Hebrew name. At least it wasn't before this story. However, if you know anything about ancient Egyptian history, you may have heard of pharaohs with names like Tutmos and Ramses. They both begin with the name of an Egyptian god, Tut and Ra, and they end with a form of the Egyptian word for son of Moses, son of Tut, son of Ra. So Moses's name, is he Egyptian? Is he Hebrew? We catch back up with Moses as an adult in the next verse, verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and saw their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Well, Moses, as far as we know, had grown up in the palace, but he goes out to his people. Moses, at least, seems to want to identify with the Hebrews. And by killing an Egyptian, he solidifies that status, at least in the eyes of the Pharaoh who then tries to kill Moses for his actions. But then his status as one of the Hebrews is immediately called into question. He sees one Hebrew beating another and he tries to stop it. And the aggressor retorts, in effect, mind your own business. With at least a bit of an implication that, hey, this is an internal family matter, not one that you have any authority to insert yourself into. Moses is immediately rejected by who he thought had been his people. So, to make things even more complicated, Moses flees into the wilderness where the people of Midian lived. 
he sees some shepherds and they're taking advantage of some sisters. And so Moses puts a stop to it. And the women go back to their father telling him who their savior was. This is verse 19. They said, an Egyptian helped us against the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. So whether it was his dress, his language, his mannerisms, the women see Moses and they see an Egyptian. But their father then calls him in, gives him one of uh, his daughters as a bride, and Moses becomes part of the Midianite family. His wife has a son. They give him a name. And this is the final verse of chapter two, and it kind of sums up everything that we've been talking about. She bore a son and he named him Gershom, for he said, I have been an alien residing in a foreign land. The name Gershom literally means foreigner there. And you can see by the tense of what Moses says that the plainest sense of the meaning that Moses assigns to this name is that he has been a foreigner living in a foreign land, with the implication being that now, with this fledgling family, he's home. Exodus 2, I think, demands that we ask the question, who was Moses? An Israelite of the tribe of Levi? A Hebrew? An Egyptian prince? An Egyptian fugitive? A Midianite? All of them? None of them? An identity is a tricky thing, isn't it? I think this aspect of the Exodus story is perhaps even more relevant to us today when many of the traditional identity markers that people have used to identify themselves, uh, extended family, career, birthplace, and tribe, they've all largely crumbled in one way or another. Although, if scholars are right that Exodus and much of the first five books of the Bible were probably brought together into their final state during the time of exile in Babylon, a time of similar identity crisis, well, maybe that's exactly why the story is told in this way. In any event, maybe some of us can identify with Moses's sense of displacement, of ambiguity, lostness. Who is Moses? A man looking for a place to belong, looking for family, looking for safety and meaning and acceptance, and not really finding it anywhere, it seems. Our house is one with elementary school-aged children, as many of you know, which means that the essential utilities are electricity, gas, water, and Disney Plus, or Disney Plus as a podcast I like jokingly refers to it, and so I have to really think about it to not say it that way. (laughs) Those of you who don't have small children may or may not be familiar with the movie Moana. It's an adventurous story of a girl, the daughter of the village chief on a Pacific island that's dying because of mysterious forces that she needs to go out and battle. She's joined by Maui, demigod of the wind and sea, both voiced by and built like Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And the story of the movie hinges on this same question of identity. Or, more specifically, it hinges on the characters remembering who they are. Moana's climactic song comes with her facing seemingly insurmountable odds that she needs to go and face, which this is a Disney movie after all. And she comes to terms with the reality that she isn't going to face down these challenges because she's some sort of chosen one, because of her immense and unique powers. Instead, she will get through by remembering who she is, where she's come from, her identity. And the song she sings is her listing off a litany of those pieces of her identity and what they mean for how she is going to take on the challenging circumstances that she faces. Maui also has a similar character arc. But the final showdown of the movie with the the big bad monster, it turns on the same theme. Because Moana does not defeat the monster with violence. 
Instead, Moana restores this terrifying lava monster Taka to the life-sustaining goddess Tefiti by reminding her and restoring her to who she was always meant to be. These stories of identity are powerful because we know how tricky it can be to find an identity, yes, but also, all the more, how difficult it can be to keep hold of that identity in a world full of voices and forces telling us who they want us to be. Meredith has sometimes used those themes in Moana to illustrate the gospel, that the good news of Jesus is that he has opened up a path for us humans to be restored to who we were always meant to be. That the misshapen, desperate confusion of identity in this world of idols and evil and injustice and sin, it can be cut through, done away with. That we can return to the Father who loves us and who has been waiting to run and meet us as we return on the road like the prodigal trudging home. God calls out to Moses from a bush as he's tending Midianite sheep in the land of Midian. And when Moses turns aside, God introduces himself. I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is calling Moses back to who he is, who he was always meant to be before the oppressive, violent forces of evil decreed that all the Hebrew boys would be flung into the Nile. And Moses was ripped from the family, from the identity that should have been his. After all, why is Moses confused about his identity in the first place? Why is he living life as a Midianite after fleeing like a foreigner? Because of the forces of empire longing for power over the marginalized people of the Hebrews. It is sin and all the confusion of the forces of sin that clouds our vision of who we are and who we are meant to be. And God in this story is calling Moses back to who he is. Go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And Moses resists and objects, equivocates and makes excuses It's that way with identity sometimes, when we've been disconnected from who God made us to be long enough that we're not so sure we want to go back, that that we're able to go back, like the prodigal in the pigsty. Well, God wins this particular argument, and we'll look at that more in future weeks. For now, let's just be clear. Who is this Yahweh? Yahweh is the God who calls people back to who they are meant to be, who they truly are, despite what appearances might be. Just a couple more notes. First, at the end of chapter four of Exodus, there's this bizarre scene, a scene that seems so completely out of place that many of the scholars I read basically throw up their hands and say, you got me, about why it's there and what it means. Here's the scene. And remember, before I read it, that God has just spent a couple chapters telling Moses to go to Pharaoh, promising that God's presence would accompany him throughout and that God would see to it that Israel would be set free. And after much complaining and arguing, Moses finally trusts God and sets off. And then, on the way, at a place where they spent the night, Yahweh met him and tried to kill him. But Zipporah, that's Moses' wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin, touched his feet with it, and said, Truly you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So God let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. I'm sorry, what now? John Goldengay, the uh, fuller Old Testament scholar, jokes that while it says that Yahweh tried to kill Moses, God must not have been trying too terribly hard. So what on earth is going on here? Christopher Wright, another Old Testament scholar, points out that the problem seems to be that Moses' son isn't circumcised. And that now, when Moses is supposed to be leading the charge 
as God fulfills God's covenant promises that they made to Abraham, well, it's a bit of a problem that Moses hasn't fulfilled his own covenant obligations of circumcising his son, as God had told Abraham to make sure all the Israelites would do as part of that covenant. And I think that's right, but I think maybe we could go a little bit further. In light of the theme that we've been exploring here today, here's what I think. Moses' son isn't circumcised. In other words, Moses hasn't done the main thing that an Israelite father is supposed to do to show his own and his son's Jewish identity. Moses, after all, had landed on life as a Midianite. And why would he, a Midianite, have circumcised his son? But now, God has called Moses back to who he is. And I think this scene is God impressing on Moses how serious it is that he come all the way back to his true identity as an Israelite, one of God's people, a part of the family whom God had made all those promises to. This scene is about Moses having to choose once and for all to be an Israelite, that that is who he is. Yes, Yahweh is a God who calls us back to who we truly are, but we have to choose to walk in that identity. If we continue walking in the false identities that the world thrusts upon us, God isn't going to override that choice. Moses, like us, has to choose to accept the reality of what God is calling him into. And speaking of this, who are these people of Israel that Moses is being called back to? What does it mean to be an Israelite? Pharaoh and Egypt with him have tried to control and define that identity. Just as the forces and cultures of this world try to control and define our own identity. We are an employee, a parent, a consumer, a worker, a student, a man, a woman, a citizen of a certain country, whatever it might be. The Israelites were slaves. Hebrew slaves with all the negative implications of that word. They were the property of the Pharaoh they served, subject to his decrees and his violence, forced to do his bidding and make his bricks. That's who they were. That's the identity Moses was being called back to. But no, God isn't done calling people back to who they were meant to be in this story. Chapter 4, verse 22 says this, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son. I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. These slaves, these Hebrews, They are not who Pharaoh says they are. They are children of Yahweh, God of the whole earth, God's sons and God's daughters and God's children. They do not belong to Pharaoh. Their identity is not dictated by the powers of this world. They belong to their father who has come to bring them home. 